Good morning again, and a happy Mother's Day to all of our moms. It's been uh, such a blessing today to worship together. I love the video that our students and Chris make. Can we give them another round of applause for that? It is, uh, it's been good to worship with you already this morning. Thankful that you are here. I want to pray uh, for us as we open God's Word together. So if you would bow with me as we begin this time of our service. Father, we're thankful for that grace that we just sang about that reaches us, that met us, uh, maybe many of us years ago in a dark moment, in a, a place in our past when we made a decision to receive and accept the grace that you so freely give. And today, Father, we celebrate and thank you for um, the work that Christ did on the cross, uh, that, uh, that you did by your power in raising Jesus from the dead. And Father, we are thankful and mindful of that, that promise that is true uh, beyond just the one day of Easter Sunday, but is still true for us today in our lives. And as we think together about that and we consider uh, the way that you have raised us to new life today, I pray that you'll open our ears and our eyes and you'll help us to hear and see all that you want us to hear and see as we study your word together. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. So on Easter Sunday, I mentioned earlier, we started a sermon series that we are calling Alive, and this series is really designed to kind of help us sit with the empty tomb, to sit at the empty tomb a little longer than just Easter Sunday. And the reason that we're doing this is because uh, I, I believe, we believe as Christians that Jesus' resurrection, just as I just said in that prayer, is something that, that is bigger than just one day, that the reason we're gathered today is because it's the day, the first day of the week, which is the day that Jesus came back to life. And so over the, the last several weeks since Easter and today and next Sunday, uh, we're in this series, we're thinking about this and the way that the, the resurrection continues to change our lives to this very day. And so just to kind of recap for us really quickly what we have talked about. On Easter Sunday, we obviously talked about Jesus' resurrection story. And then the week after that, we looked at Peter, the disciple Peter, and the way that Peter has this death and resurrection experience where he denies Jesus and then Jesus reaffirms him, puts him back into service. And so we talked about that as Peter's death and resurrection story. Then last week, we looked at Paul and how Paul had been living a life where he was killing Christians and he was persecuting the church and that he met Jesus, the resurrected Christ, on the road to the city of Damascus and that Jesus spoke to him and asked him, why are you persecuting me. And he was blind for three days and then Paul his sight was restored and we talked about that as Paul's death and resurrection story. And the way that their lives, Peter and Paul and Jesus, were completely different as a result of those resurrection experiences. But today, the person that I want to talk about is not Peter or Paul or anyone else in the Bible. The person that I want to talk about is you and the ways that your life and that my life have been changed or, and are changed as we encounter an alive Jesus, not a dead Jesus, that we serve a, a resurrected, a, a live person that is living to this very day. And the way this, that our lives, come, our lives come alive as we encounter and our lives are intersected with Jesus' life. But before we get into that, really, we're going to be in Romans 5 and 6 in just a minute. If you want to be turning in your Bibles there, the, the things we'll read will also be up here uh, on the screen, but before we get to those 
chapters and verses. We have to really start, before we talk about resurrection, we have to start by talking about our death. And to talk about that, we have to start all the way at the beginning. At the beginning of the Bible, we meet, of course, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve had been given everything. God had provided for every single need that Adam and Eve had. But something went wrong there in the Garden of Eden. They ate from the tree and paradise was lost. Sin enters the world in this moment and Adam and Eve are moved out of the garden. Eventually, Adam and Eve have children and they name their first two sons Cain and Abel. Cain was a farmer and Abel was a shepherd. And then in just the fourth chapter of the Bible, this is what it says in Genesis chapter 4. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Cain gets angry with Abel and kills his brother, and it doesn't take long, right, for things to go from this moment, from bad to worse. What we see in this moment is that sin that entered the world as a result of Adam, Adam's decision is passed on to the next generation, and it's been passed on to every generation ever since, which is where Romans 5 and 6 come in, because years later, after this reality that takes place as the beginning of the story unfolds. When the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians that are living in Rome, he's, he's searching for the right words, for the best language to describe the struggle that plagues humanity, that pl- plagues each and every one of us. And he reaches all the way back to the beginning. And in Romans chapter 5, this is what he writes, beginning in verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people, because all sin. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law, right? If there's no law, then people are not actually sinning because they don't know what's right and what's wrong. But he says, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, because the law came when Moses entered the story. So even before Moses and the law entered the story, death reigned from that time, even though over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift, Paul says, is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many. Consequently, just as, the one, as one trespass resulted in condemnation, Adam's decision in the garden resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, Jesus' death on the cross, resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And so the world was thrown into confusion with the events that happened in the Garden of Eden. 
And from that time to Christ, the world has been dominated by sin, by selfishness, by pride and by ego, by anger and by hate, by death and destruction. And this is what Paul is talking about. He says, Adam's choice made things this way. And because we are Adam's descendants, we live in a long line of humans that have lived before us, we have this same disease that killed every person before us. Adam's choice left a trail of death, you might say, in its path. But then Paul says that what happened in Christ's life and death and resurrection is that God's reign and God's rule break into Adam's world and reverse Adam's curse. And unlike Adam's choice, Christ's choice and Christ's death leaves a trail not of death and destruction, but a trail of grace and life in its path. And Christ did what Adam was unable to do and defeated death. And all of that matters because of what Paul says next in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Let's look at these words. Paul continues and he says, what shall we say then? Because we know this. We know that death existed and that Christ reversed the curse and now life is being left in Christ's path. What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning because we know that grace is now present so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were actually baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Amen? For if we have been united with him in death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. For, if we, for we, know, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body that we have that is ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has actually been set free from sin. Now, if we died to, with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. You may not know that. You may not know that if you died to Christ and you were buried with Christ in baptism, that you actually believe that you will also live with him, but that's what you believe. And Paul says, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Jesus. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, we count ourselves, yourself, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The Word of God. The world that we live in was thrown into confusion in the garden. And Paul connects this entire thing with Adam and with Jesus to baptism. And he says that, the, that part of what's happening in your baptism is that your life is joined with Christ's life. And not only were you united with Christ in his death, he says, but we were also united with Christ in his resurrection. And then as a result of what, what he's saying, as a result of this new union that exists between your life and Jesus' life, you were given a new identity. You're a new person. 
in these verses alone, just listen to the listen again. Just summer, this slide has just kind of a summary of all the language that Paul uses to explain this new identity. We were baptized into his death. We were buried with him through baptism into death in order that we might live a new life. Our old self is done away with. We died with Christ, but we live with Christ. Count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Paul is trying to say in as many different ways as he can find to say that in baptism we are new people, that our, our identity has changed. And the, in fact, this is so significant that early Christians took this idea of new identity, that what was happening when they gave their lives to Jesus Christ, when they were buried with Christ and they participated in Christ's death and resurrection through baptism, that they took this idea of new identity so seriously that people, early Christians, would actually change their names at their baptism. Did you know this? I, I love this. I love that they did this. If you've ever heard of someone talk about a person's Christian name, right? Some of you probably heard that idea before. This is where that idea of a person's given name and a person's Christian name comes from. They viewed themselves as new people to such an extent that they took on a new name, a new, which represents our identity, right? You, we, we are known by our names. If somebody calls your name, you know they're talking to you. If you call my name, I know you're talking to me. So I turn and I look at you. I'm, I'm shaped by my name. We are shaped by who we are, who we have been named to be. And so they took this so seriously, and they viewed themselves as new people to such an extent that they took on a new name to remind themselves of this new identity that they had in Jesus Christ. Now, one way that I like to think about this new identity is like this, that your baptism hurled you into the future. That what happened at your baptism is that you were hurled into the future so that you live as a person that has already died to this age and has already joined Christ in the age that is to come. To illustrate this, I want you to think about your life like a movie trailer or like a movie preview. Right? When you go to a movie, if you're like me, you like to get there early, get the appropriate snacks, get your seat, and then once you sit down and the previews begin to start, you're shown a series of these, and this image is what comes up, right? It's the, the Motion Picture Association of America's stamp of approval, that the thing that you're about to see, they have approved for you to see. And you know that you're about to watch a movie because you've, you see these previews, several of them usually. And you've, at this point in your life, all of us, we've seen hundreds of these in your lifetime. They're three to four minutes long, and they give you a picture. Think about what a, a, tra a movie trailer does. It gives you a picture of a movie that you'll get to see completely at some point in the future, right? It gives you a three to four minute section, usually spliced together to form what looks like a larger movie so that you get a kind of a, the, the whole story by just watching three to four minutes. It's not out yet, but it will be out someday. And when it comes out in the future, you'll get to see the entire movie in its full form. And when you watch these, it's never the whole movie, right? You, you understand this. But you could say, just to kind of think about this language, that the preview that you're watching in a movie theater is from the future. 
And every once in a while, if you're like me, when you're watching these kind of scroll through, and several of them play before you sit, you're actually going to get to watch the movie you came to see. Every once in a while, I'll think to myself, and sometimes I've said out loud to people that I'm with, after I'm watching a movie preview, a movie trailer, I'll say to someone, I feel like I just watched that entire movie. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You ever said this? Like you saw so much in the preview that you basically feel like you don't need to go see the movie because you just got a pretty good idea of what the movie is like. Through the preview, you have a pretty, pretty clear idea about what the movie is going to be about. You know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one? Some of, so this is an acknowledgement part of the sermon. Okay. And what I want us, I want us to think about this illustration for a minute because I, what, I, what I want to suggest is that this is your life. That you are a movie trailer. You are a movie preview. To say it in a succinct and simple way, we don't simply celebrate the resurrection. We become a picture of the resurrection. We do not simply celebrate the resurrection when we gather together with Christians. You and I are living pictures of the resurrection story every single day. And this, I believe, church, is the way that our post-baptized lives are meant to be lived. As a picture of what is coming. That someone should look at our life and go, I pretty much have an idea about what it's all going to look like at the end of time. Because I've seen these people, they call themselves Christians. And they follow this guy, he talks about all sorts of things and he talks about things that are happening that are going to be happening one day. And then I see these Christians living their life. And it's like as they live their life, their life looks already like that day that gets described by Jesus Christ. And even though I haven't seen the entire movie, even though I haven't seen the entire ending unfold, I basically have an idea and feel like I've already watched it unfold. Because I'm seeing living pictures of it every single day. This is what I believe our our post-baptized lives, how, how they are imagined to be lived. We live now the way that we imagine God wants things to be one day. And so what this means is in a world that is, that is motivated by money and sex and power, that we are motivated by love. And that looks different when we really live that out because that's not what the world is. The world is not motivated by love. It looks countercultural when we actually live in a way in the way of love. We live a holy life that is focused on others and not ourselves, and our world is focused on itself. And we don't live a holy life focused on others and not ourselves because we're trying to please God or keep some rules. That's legalism. We live a holy life because we are people that belong to the age that is to come. Right? You understand? We've died to this age, and we already belong to the age that is to come. One of my favorite personal preachers, a guy named Brian Zahn, he says it this way. He says, we carry the passport. Think about what a passport does. It allows you to enter in, into other places. We carry the passport of that kingdom whose coming beautifully remakes all that is ugly in our world. We are a colony of life in the country of death. And as colonists, we are, we, want, we are to bring life 
culture and the beauty of Christ's kingdom into the shadow lands of decay. We are to practice resurrection. There are a lot of people through the years that have lived this out, that have done what he is describing, being people who carry this passport of the kingdom around in our world so that as we're living in our world, we say, this is the way the world is, but let me tell you about a country that exists, a kingdom that exists that is nothing like this world. And you live that out through your life and through what you say and through how you treat other people. And through the years, a lot of people have done this with their lives, but my personal favorite is the very well-known Martin Luther King Jr. In his famous, I want you to think about, in his famous I Have a Dream speech, MLK imagined a day when people, think about what he was saying at that point in history, he imagined a day when people would not be judged by the color of their skin, even though that was very much happening at the time. And though we have not gotten there as a country, I think it's better than it was, and it can continue to get better. It needs to. It must continue to get better. And that we, as people, have the responsibility, particularly as followers of Jesus, have a responsibility to live into this dream that he imagined. He was a modern-day prophet, though nobody really at the time thought of him that way. How was he able to talk about this dream, this vision that he had of a future, even though in his particular moment in history, what he was experiencing was not that dream? How was he able to do that? Why was he able to do that? Imagine a world that didn't exist yet. Think about it. He was imagining a world that did not exist yet, but living like and talking like it was going to exist one day. How was he able to do it? Because he had been baptized into Christ Jesus and had died to this age and was already had one foot in the age that was to come. He already knew the movie script. He already knew how it ended. He knew that slavery and equality, any inequality, and treating people based on their outward appearance has no future in the kingdom of God. And so he lived and he spoke about a day that he believed would one day actually happen, even though it wasn't happening in his life. And he was willing to do, and eventually did, give his life to this cause because he knew that those things had no place in God's future. The Bible calls people like this, that live like this, prophets. And most prophets die, actually. Because we don't typically like what prophets have to say to us. And I think the best way to see how this actually works is to actually look at an example from the past. To actually, and actually think about how this plays out in Scripture. And one of the best places that I think of is in the Old Testament with the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. All the Old Testament prophets give great examples of what this looks like. And they're always talking about the future. They're always imagining a day that doesn't come. We're, we're in, a, in a few weeks, we're going to start a series on the prophet Micah. He is going to let us know over and over again about this day and this vision that God has in the future. They're always talking about a day that is different than what people are currently experiencing. I want you to listen to just part of what Isaiah says, the prophet Isaiah says, and how he imagines the world that it will be one day. This is what he says in, beginning in Isaiah chapter 11. He imagines this time in history when the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, 
and a little child will lead them. Before you advance that slide, go back really quickly. I want you to think about, in case you're not familiar with this passage, these people are, these animals are all adversaries, they're all enemies of one another, right? They don't coexist, they don't function together. But Isaiah is imagining a future when this will happen. They will live together. And a little child will lead them. Next slide. He says the cow will feed with the bear. Again, it continues, these opposites. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Go ahead. The the infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. We would never suggest that. In in, In that day, the root of Jesse, that's Jesus, will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. And his resting place will be glorious. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. In that day you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known. To all the world. Isaiah is talking about a world that no one at that moment in history had ever experienced. Talking about a day that was coming, but that was not any person's actual experience. A day where war will cease and peace will reign. A day where creation will exist in harmony. It was like Isaiah, even though he was from the past, was actually from the future living as a preview of the world that was to come. And I would suggest to you this morning that this is the same reason that Jesus, when he was alive, had the audacity to speak these radical words that we probably don't even think about as radical, but they were incredibly radical. He said, he said this, he said, Do not worry about tomorrow. How could Jesus say to us to not worry about tomorrow? I would suggest that it's because he's already been there. Jesus can speak about the future because the future is in his hands. Jesus has been to your tomorrow and wants you to know that everything is going to be all right. It was like he came to earth as a preview of the future. Are you with me? And today I want to suggest that what, what happens as as we enter into that, we, we enter into that vision, we enter into to that life, we begin living that preview kind of life ourselves at our baptism. That's the moment that we begin to live that life. That's the moment when everything changes for us. Because what happens in our baptism, think about what happens in our baptism, is that it, baptism allows us to die up front. While we're alive, we die to ourselves. So that then... We can live. And the rest of our lives are imagined to be spent pointing people to this day that is ahead of us. Pointing back to our baptism and saying, I've died to myself. Let me tell you about the future that's ahead of me. And we'll never do this perfectly. We'll still mess up. Life will certainly still be hard at times. But we will face all of those things as a person that has already died and been resurrected. That's what's happening in our baptism. And so practically speaking, as Jesus' people, as a resurrected people, 
as a person who's living out your resurrection story. This is why it matters how we live. Again, I said this a minute ago, but it's worth repeating. We don't live lives for God because we're scared of God or because we're afraid that God is out to get us or because we're trying to, it's not a, a merit system. We're not trying to please God. God doesn't love us more the more that we do, right? We don't do those things because of that. We, we live in a certain way as holy people because we have died to this age and have been raised in, an, in the age that is to come. And so practically speaking, think about this. This is why it matters how we live. This is why it matters who you are. This is why it matters how you spend your money, how you love your neighbors, how you speak to people, how you speak about people when they're not around, how you treat your enemies and speak about those with whom you disagree. This is why it matters how you behave publicly because we're wearing the name of Christ everywhere we go. It matters, this is why it matters what we share on Facebook or Instagram or any other place where you post on social media. This is why it matters what you do when no one is watching, and this is why it matters what you do when everybody is watching. This is why it matters what we value and how we spend our time and what we invest our lives in. We're not doing this, not living this life because we think God you know, is out to get us or angry at us or you know, ready to strike us down with a lightning bolt. That's not, that's not how God exists. God is love, Scripture says. We do what we do. We live how we live in this resurrected way because we belong to another kingdom, church. And all of these ways that I've suggested and a thousand more are how we crucify our old selves and we begin to preview the resurrection. Sometimes people call it holiness, living a holy life. And living a holy life sounds like a really fancy Bible way of saying something, but all, 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 the, that, all, all that idea means is that it's not based upon a certain set of rules. It's, it's just a desire to live a resurrected life, to live like you've already seen the end of the movie, to live like you know what's going to happen at the end, which you do. That we died to ourselves and we've been raised with Christ. This morning, I want to speak to those of us in the room, those of us that are watching online. Some of us have already surrendered our lives to Jesus. You made a decision in the waters of baptism to give your life to Jesus a long time ago, 10, 20, 40 years ago, maybe two years ago. At some point in your past, you surrendered your life to Christ. You said, God, I want my life to be merged to, with your life. And then after you made that decision, you, you stepped into the water somewhere, this baptistry, another church, some sw- swimming pool, some river. You stepped somewhere into some body of water and somebody baptized you into Christ. And you actually, I talked about this in our baptism class the last couple of weeks, but d- baptism actually reenacts the death and resurrection story. That's part of why we go down like we do and we come up like we do, that you're actually visually dying and being raised back to life. And many of us, we made that decision a long time ago, at some point in our past, in our story. But today, we are allowing our vis- another vision to, other than Jesus' vision, to govern our life. We said we were all in, but we're not living like we're all in today. Because what we did, what we said when we went into the waters of baptism is that we were all in with Jesus Christ. 
that we're ready to surrender fully to him, that he gets the final, the first and the final say over everything in our life. But today, we meant that then, but today we aren't living like that. And, and if this is your life, I, I, don't, I don't say that to be to shame or to guilt, because you've heard me say before, I don't think shame or guilt have anything to do with God. I think conviction has to do with God. And if that convicts you, then that I would say listen to the Spirit and do what you need to do in regard to that. I would suggest if this is your life, you don't need to be rebaptized, but you might need to, to turn in a new direction, which is all the word repent means, to turn, to realize that you're doing this thing, to turn and go and do this thing instead. And again, that, that the word, that's what the word repent means. And sometimes we get scared by these fancy Bible words like repent. But the practice of repentance simply means that you acknowledge where you are and you make a decision to commit to turn your life in a different direction back over to God. God's already forgiven you for that. Jesus' love is grand enough and big enough and his blood continues to wash you clean. You don't have to ask for forgiveness every time you sin. It's already washed your sins clean. And so today, if that's your story, I would ask you to listen to the Spirit of God that is at work in your heart and in your mind and respond appropriately. Talk to someone. I would love to talk to you. Find a community of people, in your, a circle of people in your life that you can share with. Hey, this is the... I heard this, this message. This is what's going on in my heart. I'm ready to turn and do a different thing. And then begin doing it. That's, it says, it's actually as simple as that. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but the beginning stage is as easy as that. And there may be some others here today that have been thinking for some time about your life, but you've never actually made the decision to go all in, to be baptized into Christ. Baptism is simply a, just, again, a surrendering of your life to Christ. And if that's you, we would love to help you, talk to you, take that step today or in the days to come. Because this is, this is why baptism matters, I think. If I, if I just could say it in like two sentences, this might be one long run-on sentence. It matters because it is one thing to acknowledge that you'd like to live in a new way. Hear me. And it is an entirely different thing to immerse your entire body into a new way of living. It's one thing to say that you want to live in a new way. It is another thing to immerse your entire body, to give yourself to this new way of life. But in baptism, that is what we are invited to do. And that is how we begin living a resurrected life, so that we can die here and never taste death again. That Christ's victory becomes your victory. That Christ's defeat of death becomes your defeat of death. Today, this week, may we live as a preview of what is to come. Living out the story of Jesus Christ by loving our neighbors, treating people like Christ has treated us, having courage and commitment to live a holy life, not out of obligation, but out of a desire to give back our lives back to God for all that he's given to us, because we have been raised with Jesus Christ, raised to live a new life. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we proclaim this morning and acknowledge that we trust in your vision for the world, that vision that Isaiah proclaimed and talked about, that 
all the Old Testament prophets talked about, that modern-day prophets have talked about, that Jesus himself talked about. We, we believe and trust in that vision for the world, and we want to be a part of that vision becoming a reality, living our lives as a preview of what is to come in the days ahead. We believe, Father, that even in the darkness of the world, even in the suffering and the struggle and the difficulty of our world, that you are still working in ways we don't see all the time, in ways we don't understand most of the time. But we trust in your vision for the world and for our lives. And today, maybe some of us need to just recommit to that vision that we accepted a long time ago. Recommit to being all in in a way that we have not been, quite honestly. And maybe others this morning, God, are are still wrestling and thinking about their life and and making a decision to really do that. And they don't feel ultimate peace that that can come from giving our lives to you, that, that it may feel like a sacrifice to surrender our lives to you. But what we're actually getting is so much more. We're getting life, a new life, a new identity. And so I pray that you, God, will meet all of us where we are today, that you'll speak to our hearts, that you'll help us to live our lives to be a preview of the world that is to come. Help us, Lord Jesus, our brother, our Savior, and our friend. It is in your name that we pray. And the church said this morning, amen. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to sing a song.